Thank you, thank you. We know the Queen needs it. She's getting old. But uh, Dad is obviously saving the bees around, which we know from the bee movie is absolutely essential. It's an essential service. Well, everyone, it's good to see you. Who has just entered school holidays? Yeah? And who's happy to be here tonight? Well, I want to say... God bless you for making it here at the end of a school term because I know that I'm exhausted, Bethany's exhausted. It's been a massive term. You guys are legends. You receive a double blessing. For those who are on the, watching the stream, you guys are blessed too. Uh, for those who didn't make either, you know, I bless you, but not, not in the same way. Like, like your grandmother. Oh, bless him. You know, like your grandmother might say, tonight I'm really, really excited about the topic I get to bring. I might just pop up my passes card so I can see it as I'm going, just as a bit of encouragement. Harry, who couldn't make it tonight, he always he's been going around for the last month at the school calling me Pastor Elijah, Pastor Elijah, and his mates look at me, look at him, going, "What are you talking about?" And please don't persist at calling me Pastor Elijah. I like Elijah just fine. And Mr. Burrell, you don't need to say that either. All right. Well, today. Really excited to get into the Bible, get into the Word of God. And before we start, let's just quickly pray. Thank you, Jesus, for your Word. And thank you that you've brought it to us over generations and generations that we could have it here, that it could change our lives. And I pray that you would open up our hearts and our minds to learn something about your Word that will change our lives. We pray for your peace and your Holy Spirit over this service. Amen. Amen. Well, can I get my first slide up, please? I've got quite the exciting slideshow tonight, and I hope you're excited. This here is our up-and-coming The Bible 2, The Newest Testament Presents. Now, I really enjoyed seeing this picture. I was, I was looking on the internet for certain things, and I wanted to let you know, if you think that something like this is coming to stores near you, then you probably don't quite understand how the Bible works. Although I think if J.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis got together, they could probably pull off a pretty good Bible too. Am I right? If you don't know those guys, they're pretty incredible writers. They wrote The Lord of the Rings and Narnia, and they're pretty awesome. You know, when we get to church, recently in particular, it has been less of a, a, a less of a, this is what we do as Christians and more of a, oh, let's just do this because it's a Friday night. And I'm a bit afraid that over the last few years, we've lost a bit of reverence, which means a bit of honour and respect for this thing. And you might be sitting there thinking, well, why, do we, why would we honour a book? Why would we think of a book as important? What I've noticed myself do in the last few years, which I felt convicted by recently, is I started, well, it started by I'd get a notification. You know what I mean? Your pocket would vibrate and then you look at your phone. It started as like that, right? And I'd bring my notebook and my Bible. And then it progressed to, I'm not going to bring a notebook anymore. I'm actually going to write my notes on my phone. And, uh, and that was all well and good. But then it progressed to, I'm going to be on an app during the service and then maybe I'll write notes when I hear something good. 
And every time I get a notification, I click on that new app. And what this has done, I feel like has kind of dishonored the Bible a little bit. Because when we come to church, we're not just coming to hear a TED talk or a a new uh, school lesson. We're actually here to hear from the Word of God. So I encourage you guys to maybe leave a little extra battery life in your phone and bring a notebook. Bring the journals back. Turn to the person next to you and say, bring the journals back. Do you reckon we can do it as a church? Bring the journals back. Make journals cool again. Can you say that to your neighbour? Make journals cool again. Now that's the challenge I wanted to present you guys tonight. Now we're going to get started. There's a bunch of things that people commonly say about the Bible. Can I get to the next slide? They might say this. It's a bunch of old stories put together, but it never really happened. It's irrelevant to today's problems. It's barbaric and cringe. At best, a useful fiction, which is hateful and legalistic. I'm not religious, and besides, other religions have books that are pretty much the same, and I already know how to be a good person. I once went to a Catholic school and realised the Bible's not for me. I've, it's nice and fanciful. Besides, I'm, not, I'm too busy reading relevant books on tops, topics that matter. Let's face it. You've read one, you've read them all. It's just a book. Anyone ever heard one of those, someone say something like that about the Bible? Should we give any of these things any credit? That's worth thinking about. Do they have a point? Today, we're going to be looking at three questions, if we can get that slide up. Three questions, and these questions are essential. Firstly, is the Bible special? Is the Bible trustworthy? And is the Bible the Word of God? If the Bible's not special, then I probably shouldn't even ask you to read it. If the Bible's not trustworthy, then I wouldn't ask you to trust anything it says. And if the Bible's not the Word of God, then I wouldn't ask you to live your life by it. So we're going to establish what is the truth about these things. Is it, is it special? Or is it just another one of those books? Is it trustworthy or is it full of lies? Is it the word of God or is it a man-made invention? So let's look at the first question. Is it special? What do you guys reckon? You know, most of us are Christians and we probably have a bit of a relationship with our Bible. As you can see, I've had a long relationship with my Bible. It's getting old. It's a senior. You know how they say dogs... Dogs at seven years to a, a one year of a person. Or well, maybe Bibles, maybe more like 20 to one. My one at least. So can we go to the next slide, please? Let's have a look at our Bible. Get your microscopes out and have a look at it. Right here is a really cool diagram found online. And it's actually got everything inside the Bible. And you know that claim, the Bible is just a book. Well, it fails on multiple parts because... The Bible's not really a book. As you can see here, the Bible's a library. And I love going to the library. And this library or library is full of all sorts of literature. And it's uh, got 
law and history, poetry, major, minor prophets, gospels, history again, Paul's letters, and then a bunch of other letters to random people, and lastly with Revelation. It's a library. And what's interesting about this library is when you step into it, every one of the books is connected in some way. It's like one of those magical bookcases. You pull one book out and another one moves. If you've seen that Interstellar movie, you know what I'm talking about. Let's go to the next slide. Next one again. In the Bible, there are 66 books, to be precise. There are 39 in the Old Testament, the first part, and there are 27 in the second part. And there are many different genres. Let's have a look at the genres, right? So most books, they have one genre, right? Or maybe two if you're lucky. Let's have a look at this. It's got history, poetry, law, songs, parables, biographies, personal letters, sermons, instructions, prophecies, and apocalyptic literature, as well as other, a bunch of other minor literature that you could fit in there too. When it comes to authors, there are f- around 40 different authors in this one book. And the uh, ranks of which are shepherds, priests, prophets, kings, rabbis, fishermen, a tax collector, a dolphin. Just waiting to see whether you're listening. Okay, a tent-making Pharisee and a Greek doctor. Did you know that? Maybe this is new to you. Uh, next, next one there. And all these writers wrote these parts of the Bible over a span of 1,400 years. That is an incredibly long time. If you think about how long your life is and how many times that fits into that, that is an incredibly long time from beginning to end. And what do we have as a result? We have a consistent message. We've got the next slide. A consistent message all the way through without contradiction. Now that is pretty special if you ask me. So many writers, so many genres over such a space of time, and it's consistent, it doesn't have contradictions. Some people might be there saying, whoa, 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 no contradictions in the Bible? Well, one thing that has actually led me to believe in this is the word of God is that every contradiction that is presented, there is a a real answer for that I found in my life. And it's really incredible. No other book has such a variety of works by such an array of authors with such a complete message. Can I hear an amen? It's pretty cool. So that's our first question. Is it special? You know, your mom always tells you you're special. You're special. Well, the Bible, I think we could safely say, is pretty special. I also heard the Bible is the most stolen book in the world. Do you know that? And I wonder whether it's also the most returned book. I don't know. I don't know statistics on that, but I think it's funny. All right, next one. Is it trustworthy? So let's go. Um, the questions we've got to answer here, is it trustworthy, is how can we be sure that what was written down originally is what we have today? And also, how can we be sure that what the original writers wrote, the shepherds and the rabbis, how can we be sure that what they wrote was true? Okay, so two questions. How can we be sure 
we have what it was originally written and how can we be sure, be sure that what they wrote was true? So we're going to look at first the Old Testament. I think the Old Testament can help us answer that first question. The Old Testament. Now this is a Torah scroll and these Torah scrolls are pretty awesome. I encourage you to look up some videos, uh, guys, that, that, look, that show you um, the complexity of these scrolls. You know, in English, we write from left to right and read that way. But in, uh, in Hebrew, ancient Hebrew, they did the opposite way. So they'd start writing in the top right corner of this scroll. And it looks pretty incredible. It actually looks like it was printed from a printer, doesn't it? With how neat the lines are, how neat the letters are, there's hardly a smudge on it. And these things could be as long as 100 feet long, all attached together. Let's look at the, the next point. So when it comes to the Old Testament, the oldest manuscript. Now, when I say manuscript, you might be like, what's a manuscript? I'm a bit confused. Elijah. Don't, go, don't go too fast. Don't go ahead of me. Okay. A manuscript is a handwritten ancient copy of something. If you didn't know, they didn't have printers back in Jesus' day. And they didn't have iPhones either. They actually wrote it by hand. And they had to be very skilled. And naturally, what happens to these things that are written by hand, usually they're written on animal skin. I'm sorry to you vegans, that's what they did. And those things preserved, you know, for a few hundred years, they were pretty good. But they deteriorated. And so we don't have that many. Considering the first one was written 1400 BC, we have one that's 300 BC. You might be thinking, why is that? Why don't we have that many? Well, have a look at my Bible here. This Bible is about 13 years old. And as you can see, it's already deteriorating quite a lot. And you might have something like this. Imagine what this Bible is going to look like in, in 20 years of me using it. And then in 100 years, it would probably be dust. And, and that's what happens. But we actually have an existing handwritten manuscript that dates to 300 BC. So that's literally 2,300 years old. We have it and it's in a museum. That is pretty incredible, considering all the others deteriorate. The only way that it's preserved is if it's locked in an airtight uh, cave or um, in an airtight case of some sort. And that's what we have. And, that, and I think the oldest one is a copy of Daniel or, or one of those texts there or, or the Torah. So, uh, go, can I go to the next slide, please? When the scribes copied these, so let me read you this, okay? If you wanted to be a scribe back then, you, most, you usually had to be born into a scribal family. You couldn't just uh, rock up to scribe school one day. You actually had to be born into a family. And what would happen is from the age of about eight years old, do we have any eight-year-olds here? Any eight-year-olds? We've got some 12-year-olds. Uh, well, you guys who are a bit older, think about when four years ago whether you'd be prepared to do this. So from the age of eight, they were taught to memorize this thing. They were taught to recite from memory the entire Old Testament. You can just imagine an eight-year-old coming up to you right now and saying, In the beginning, God created the heavens. And just going on and on and on and being able to recite the whole thing. They were very, very clever. When a scribe was to copy the scroll, before he could even start writing, he must be sacramentally clean. 
clear-minded and properly dressed. He would then begin copying the scroll, which would take as long as three years to complete. Think about that. Before he could even start copying it, he had to dress himself properly. He had to make sure he was clean, no B.O. He, he would go into the sacred place where they would write and he'd begin copying it. It took him a very long time just to complete one scroll, one copy. During the copying process, scribes were not permitted to copy from memory. You know how they could memorize it? Well, they weren't allowed to when they were copying it because it was sacred. They had to get it perfect. So they couldn't also copy words or phrases at a time. They actually had to copy letter by letter and they had to verbalize each letter as it was written. You can just think about it now. P, P, I, I, G, G, S. And they go on and on writing this one by one letter. Did I spell a word there, did I? Okay. They go on and they couldn't do phrases. They couldn't do two letters at a time. And they would always check, even if they were onto their 50th scroll in their life. Although that's 150 years. They're not that old. And they'll go on and on and on and have to copy these things perfectly. Now, this is really cool. Before they wrote, there's one special word in the Torah that is unlike any other word. And there's a reason for it. It's the word of God. It is the name of God. And the way we pronounce it these days is Yahweh. But they actually didn't pronounce it because it was such a special word. So usually they would represent it by four big consonants. And those consonants were Y-H-W-H. And before they wrote this word, they had to get the special name of the Lord pen. So it was different from the other ones. And they had to put ink on it. And they would start writing. And if, when they began writing, the ink of one of the, le- name, one of the letters in the name of God joint to another one, they had to take the entire scroll that they had done and bury it, and it could never be used. Now, that is incredible. You know, that is just to give you an idea of how seriously and reverently and honorably they treated this thing as they went about their day. They took an extremely long time copying this. Can I go to the next slide? So 100 BC to 1000 AD, that's 1100 years. Now, what does this mean? We have texts from 100 BC that were discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls, amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls, that are exactly the same as scrolls that were written 1000 AD. That means that in an 1100-year period, there were no differences made at all, no accidents, no additions, between these two texts. Now, that is incredible. And if you were a scholar, you would see that this is very unique because all the time when people are copying by hand, they're making mistakes, they're adding footnotes, they're changing, they're making, putting synonyms for words. But we actually have a very incredibly preserved text. And the next slide, please. 304,805 letters. Anyone want to guess what that means? Anyone want to guess? No? This is how many letters were in the heat. Oh, Tamara, what do you reckon? Yeah, yeah, that's right. 
It's how many letters were in the Torah scroll. The Torah is the beginning of the Bible. It's the first five books of the Bible. And in this scroll, there were that many letters. And every scribe knew exactly how many letters there were, mind you. They also knew that the middle letter was number 152,403. They knew that, and there was a very important reason for that. When a scribe would finish one of their scrolls, this is really cool. When he'd finish one of his scrolls, so he spent a long time on this, he would hire a counter. Now, imagine being paid to count things. Not an accountant, a counter. And this counter would go through and count every single letter in the scroll. If they got to the middle of the Torah, which was like a Leviticus 7, I think, and he'd get there, and if the letter was wrong, that was meant to be the middle letter, they would have to go back and find where it was. They'd do this as many as three times going through the entire Torah. If, they, if there was still an issue after three times, they would bury it and never use it. Three years of work, pff, down the drain. Not that down the drain, they actually had so much respect for it that they wouldn't burn them, they would bury them like they, were, like they died. I think that's pretty cool as well. No other document, can I go to the next slide? No other document in all of history has ever been so carefully, faithfully and accurately copied from generation to generation. We can have relative certainty that what we have in our Old Testament is what was originally written. Now, that's pretty incredible. So when you, people, when you hear people saying, how can you know that what is in the Bible isn't just a bunch of mistakes and copies of copies of copies and, and uh, just changed over years and years? Well, you can tell them that we can actually have almost 100% certainty that what we have in our Bibles is what was written back then. But we still have that other question to answer. Is what, they, is what was written true? So let's look. Actually, we're not going to answer that question yet. I want to look first at the New Testament, then we'll answer that question. Let's look at the New Testament, okay? I love the New Testament. The New Testament is uh, where you get the hope fulfilled. It's like the, the original trilogy to Star Wars. And then you got the, the prequel trilogy, Old Testament. You know, it's pretty sad. It, it ends on a sad note. But, and then the sequel trilogy, that's the Bible too. It's not real. It's not authentic. You don't want to read that. Okay, can I, can I see the first, the first thing? So one thing that you guys need to understand is that we do not have translations of translations of translations, as some people say. Some people reckon that they will say to Christians, don't you know that your Bible is translations of translations of translations? And by the time that you get to your translation, it's changed so much. How can you possibly think that what you have is what was originally there? Well, we actually, there's only one translation between what was written and what we have because we have the documents in the original language. So for the Old Testament, which is written in the Hebrew language, we have the text written in Hebrew. And there's just one translation, or if you're really cool like Elijah here, and you speak Hebrew, he doesn't speak, he's trying to read it, then you've got no gaps between what the original translation is and your understanding. If you're Adam White, then you can literally read the Greek, and, and there'll be no translations of translations. You know what you're talking about. And that's really incredible. 
That's important to remember because some people, they don't realize that. Do you know that with the New Testament, there are more manuscriptual, which means the amount of manuscripts, more evidence than any other ancient writing ever. The text which comes second is Homer's Iliad. You might have heard of Homer's Iliad. It's an ancient Greek like mythology. It's really cool. And it has an abundance of 1,757 manuscripts. That's a lot. Would you say that's a lot? That's a lot of manuscripts. In fact, if you were to stack every single known manuscript that we have, you have a thing about four feet tall. That's a lot of manuscripts, okay? The New Testament, however, I'll get the next slide up, it wins by a landslide with over 5,800 Greek New Testament manuscripts. And these are ancient there are actually many more, and we're talking upwards of 25,000 ancient manuscripts in other languages as well from areas around Greece. And that's pretty, pretty incredible. If we're going to compare this, we've got the forefoot of Homer's Iliad. Well, the, all the New Testament documents are about two empire state buildings tall. Now, that is much, much taller. I think that's pretty incredible. Also, that's all biblical manuscripts. That's including the Old Testament. So the... Uh, I'll go to the next one. The earliest manuscript that we've discovered about the New Testament is actually extraordinarily early. We don't have what we call autographs. Now, an autograph means the original thing that was written by the actual hand of the writer. So if I wrote these notes here with my own hand and you found this in 20 years, you'd have my autograph. But if you had a copy, someone had copied my notes, then you wouldn't have the autograph. Now, we, no one has, we don't have the autographs of any ancient person because things deteriorate really quickly. But we do have copies that are extraordinary early, extraordinarily early. And we actually have one of the most incredible archaeological uh, findings, and that is a manuscript dating at AD 125. And that's, a, that's, the, that's from the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John is believed to have been written in 90 AD. So we literally have about 30 years separating when the Gospel of John was written and when we have a manuscript from that time. That means the guy who may have owned that manuscript may have known some of the disciples himself. He was living in living memory of the disciples. And that is pretty awesome. And we have that. And we also have several from a similar time. In comparison... Julius Caesar, the, the old Roman emperor guy, his biography is only known by a text that was written 950 years after the original was written. That is a long time. We have much closer evidence. You might ask yourself, aren't there heaps of differences in the different manuscripts? Didn't they make lots of errors? Didn't they make lots of mistakes? Yeah, they did. Can we get the next slide up? In fact, there's a scholar, he's, he's an he's a agnostic atheist, and he says that there's about 400,000 differences. If we look at all the different manuscripts, the 5,000 plus, then there's about 400,000 differences. And you might think, oh no, my Bible must be full of differences. In fact, there's not even that many letters um, in, there's not even that many words in your New Testament. So you might think, oh, then every single word in my New Testament must be different. Well, actually, when we look at these New Testament uh, manuscripts, 
because we have so many of them, we can actually work out what's true. For example, if I gave you guys my diary tonight and I said, I want all of you to copy this word for word, bring it to my desk by Monday, and I give it to you, right? You guys have to copy it from word for word. You know how many differences in manuscripts we'd have? We'd have a lot more than the amount of people here. Some of you would spell my name with a G. Some of you would uh, give a synonym for another word you didn't know the meaning of. Some of you would make slight mistakes here and there. Some of you might blur two letters together, or a lot of you wouldn't be able to read my handwriting. And what we'd have is a lot of different manuscripts. And imagine you doing this over several hundred years. You'd have a lot of differences. But this, these differences, all they are are simple spelling mistakes, which are easily corrected, or grammar mistakes. One example of these is in, in, the, in uh, Matthew, it says that Joseph was the son of Heli, but we have manuscripts that says, say Joseph was the son of Eli, and there's literally one letter difference, the H. So that happens a lot, and it could just be spelling mistakes, and that's what happens. In fact, almost all of them are just spelling mistakes. There are still a few differences And those differences are in places like at the end of the Gospel of Mark or um, in John chapter 8. And these are are things that are believed by scholars to be added a a few, maybe a few decades or 100 years later after the things were originally written. But you know what's great? In your Bibles, it'll actually tell you when that's happened. It'll tell you near the bottom. Not in, it was these, as I say, these passages were not in the original manuscripts or something like that. And the reason for that is so that you know you're not being hassled here. They're not, no one's trying to get you to believe something that wasn't exactly written. But I believe that these things that were added later are still scripture in the sense that they're consistent with everything the scripture says and that God still allowed them to be copied for a purpose, for a reason. So that's what we have with the New Testament. But how can we know what they, what they said was true? Well, we're going to look at four legends. Can you guys say four legends? And these guys are real cool. They're from the Bible. And these guys, their testimony is absolutely gold. We, they are what we call internal evidence. And if you're like me, you like evidence. Let's go to the next one. I think we'll have... Uh, oh, actually, I'll show you the graphs for you. So... This is a comparison to the amount of manuscripts we got. We got Homer, the New Testament Hebrew Bible, and then the next one's another graph. And this is the time gap between when it was written and what we have. And you can see in the New Testament Gospel of John, we have about 30 years. And then you have these other ones that there's a much bigger gap. If we can keep going. This is the guy. This is Luke. Everyone say hi, Luke. Luke Luke in the Bible wrote two books. He wrote the Gospel of Luke and he wrote Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. And this guy is really, really cool and very interesting. In fact, he's not really mentioned much in the Bible. He's only mentioned in two places in the Bible by Paul in his letters. But Luke, there's some very interesting things about him. There is an archaeologist. His name is Sir William Ramsey, not Gordon Ramsey. They may have known each other. And he was one of the greatest archaeologists that ever lived. And he believed the biblical accounts of writers such as Luke were legendary at the very least, which means he thought they were totally baloney. Whatever Luke said, he was like, ah, he's just making it up. He's a fake. He's a phony. 
But after about 30 years of dealing with the areas where the, where the Bible talks about, Ramsey came to this conclusion. This is pretty cool. Listen to this. Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy. This author should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. He stated elsewhere, Luke's history is unsurpassed in respect of its trustworthiness. Trustworthiness. One of the things he discovered was in all of Luke's Gospels, in all of Luke's Gospel and in Acts, he mentions 32 countries, 54 cities and 9 islands without a single error. So that means that he got the spelling of the place right. He got where the place was. So if there was one city between two other cities, he knew where it was. When it was talking about how long it would take to get to a place, he was exactly right. When he talked about uh, things that you'd see when you're at that place, he was right. And also the type of language that people use in those places. He was correct. And that's why he was placed, this way. this guy who was a skeptic of the Bible and Christianity said, Luke is actually a historian worthy to be placed amongst the best of historians. Now that's pretty cool for a biblical writer. Next time someone tells you that your Bible is full of a bunch of lies, you can tell them that. Now Luke says um, some interesting things. In fact, at the very beginning of Luke, he says this. Sorry if the text is a bit small or blurry. It's what you've got to live with, as I've got to fit my four heroes up here. And he says this, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decide to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Now, if you are into reading books, you know how a, a fictional book normally starts. A long time ago in a galaxy, in a galaxy far, far away, or once upon a time. But Luke starts his gospel, not with a once upon a time, but with something very much what looks like he's giving a history. He's writing a history. And historians would agree that Luke is being honest here. And he writes, I'm pretty much what he's saying is, I talked to eyewitnesses, people who saw these things happen, and now I'm writing it down. All throughout the Gospel of Luke, what is really cool is he mentions certain people, and you might think, why the heck did he mention um, Cephas or whoever it is? And the reason is because that is likely the person who he talked to to know what happened at that time. So Luke was a really cool historian. There's also a few times in Acts where it's talking about Paul's adventures and all of a sudden it switches from saying Paul did this to saying we did this. And it only says a few times, you've got to keep your eye out for that. And when Luke does that, he's saying, I was there and I saw this with Paul. And so most of the places that Luke writes about, he had first-hand experience with. He was actually there, which is really, really fascinating. Can we get to the next guy? Our next mate, his name is John. Can you say hi, John? John here is one of Jesus' three closest disciples. And John was uh, 
one of the early leaders of the church. And he uh, says some pretty awesome things. We'll look at what he says. So in John 19.35, he says this. This is just after Jesus' death. He says, The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. You know, when he says testimony, he's not just saying, yeah, I saw it. When you say testimony, it's like he's putting, he's giving you his word. It's a serious. It's like he's like um, swearing on the book. You know, he's being real serious about what he's saying. And then next in one of his letters, he writes this. That which was from the beginning, which we heard, which we have seen with our eyes, and which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. If John was going to make these stories up, then he probably wouldn't be so um, so adamant that he touched and saw and heard. He could have gone around saying, you know, they say that Jesus did this. Or he came as a spirit and we couldn't see him or we couldn't, feel, we couldn't actually touch him. But no, he actually comes right out and says it. He's not a spirit, guys. Because we can hear him, see him, and touch him. And that's why I'm proclaiming to you that he is the risen Messiah. And that's what he came to speak about. John sincerely knew, he sincerely believed what he was writing. Let's have a look at this next guy. This next guy we all love to hate and hate to love. Peter. Can you say hi, Peter? Peter, the fisherman. And the disciple. Now, Peter's a really interesting guy. We've got a few writings by Peter in the Bible. That's one John and two, sorry, one Peter and two Peter. They just swapped names and made it really confusing for everyone. No. Peter was also one of Jesus' three. And he spoke about in his writings, but also in the Gospel of Mark, because we believe Mark probably heard stories from Peter. It's all about Peter's failures and embarrassments. And I don't know about you, but if you were trying to make people believe something really cool that you knew was a lie, you probably wouldn't talk about your failures and embarrassments. Him being one of the leaders of the church, he probably wanted people to think of him really highly. So why does he mention things like he denied Jesus? He got called Satan by Jesus. He was nowhere to be seen when Jesus was crucified. These, these are not things that he should say. He doubted Jesus and his claims. Why would he make these things up if they weren't true? So this is called the criteria of embarrassment. And Peter is a great example of this because he's no hero according to the Bible. He's honest and he's telling the truth. He doesn't glorify himself. He wouldn't, um, he actually also, what's incredible about Peter is he didn't even deny these things when he was put on a cross and crucified. Peter was crucified like his Lord. And we have that by several attestations in history. That's pretty incredible. And what does Peter say? He says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And then he says in Acts, this is actually written by Luke, but said by Peter. He says, fellow Israelites, 
Listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. What's important about that last one is he's not saying, oh, this was done in another place and you just didn't see it. He's making the assumption, and us readers, we see this, making the assumption that the people that he was speaking to literally knew that Jesus was a real guy and they knew that Jesus had been going around and doing things and maybe healing people. And he was then talking to them about this. He assumed that they'd know. So this is also a, a really good criteria of us knowing that what he's saying is true. What he's saying is being honest. Let's look at our last hero of the day. And this is, you know, one of my favorite guys in the Bible. His name's Paul. Say hi, Paul. Good day, Paul. Paul is a legend. If you don't know much about Paul, he is that tent-making Pharisee that we heard about. That's right. He knows how to make tents, but he also was a Pharisee, which meant he was really dedicated to the Torah, the Old Testament writings. And he loved the Torah, and he was zealous for it, which meant he was very passionate about it. So much so that any religious sects like uh, Christianity that came, apart, came, came, came abroad, he was totally against them. So much so that he would imprison them and kill them for what they did when they came up and tried to change uh, what he believed in the Old Testament. And he probably even saw Jesus teaching a few times in the temple. Where he was studying in Jerusalem, he would have seen Jesus come and go as Jesus did several times. So Paul is a really good uh, eyewitness to listen to what he says. And one, in one of his letters, he says this. This is a creed in 1 Corinthians. This is a, big, a long one. Listen to this. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the Twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared also to me, as to one abnormally born. Now what's important about this one is he mentions a whole bunch of people. And the reason he mentions these people to the Corinthians, the people he's writing to, is he's saying, if you don't believe me about Jesus rising from the dead, there are over 500 people that saw it happen. It's kind of like uh, when you tell a mate a story, mate, you wouldn't believe this happening. He goes, no way, that didn't happen, mate. No way, just ask Johnny, he knows. It happened. Trust me. Well, he's saying there are over 500 witnesses that know that this happened. But he said many of them have fallen asleep, which means many of them have died. But the ones that are still alive would be happy to tell you all about this. And this is also a really good example, really good evidence that these guys were being honest about what they wrote. They weren't making up lies. Anyone could have gone, what is he talking about? There aren't 500 people around. Who am I meant to ask? Give me their names. Well, he actually did give a few names there. But he probably had a bit of a list of names of people that had actually seen Jesus in the flesh. So what's our conclusion? Our conclusion is, one, they were, they were sincerely convinced of the truth that they testified about. Two, their writings were not based on hearsay, but on eyewitness testimony. And three, 
the historicity of their writings is of the highest rank. And you can see this, I didn't go into it with the other writers, but you look at their writings and they are right about so many practical things, about the names of people, the names of places, the times at which things happened. And this, again and again, people try to poke holes in the Bible and they end up getting proven wrong. And I'd love to go into, in that, into that with you if you're interested uh, because I find that stuff really, really interesting. We can be reasonably certain that, what we ha- that we have what the original writers wrote and that what they wrote was honest and true. And that's pretty awesome. Honest and true. I'm going to get to our last question now. Is, is, the, is it the word of the living God? Is it the word of the living God? This one's going to be a bit harder for me to answer. Good thing Jesse gave me three hours to go through this. Don't worry, time flies when you're having fun. <laughs> We're not going that long, don't you worry. So there's a man named Hein Pham. Could you send the next slide up for me, Michaela? Can we give uh, the production team a hand? They're awesome. They're great. And I gave them a heck of a lot of slides. And they dealt with it perfectly. It took me about an hour to email them because the... There was too many megabytes to email in one email, and my internet's slow. So, Hein Pham. Now, this guy, he has an incredible story. And there are people that validate his story to say it's 100% true. So, Hein Pham, he's a Vietnamese man. And during the Vietnamese War, Hein Pham was imprisoned on accusation of helping Americans. And his jailers tried to indoctrinate him as he was there for quite a long time. They indoctrinated him with socialism and atheism to make him feel hopeless and have no sense of God, of right or wrong. He was a believer, but it rocked him and it shook him so much. They weren't allowed anything to read in there except for Marx. And Marx is the socialist guy. And... uh, and they were even read this by the prison guards. And this was a, the attempt at brainwashing these guys. Hein Farm was amongst them. So maybe he thought, after what is like a torturous time in this prison, he said, maybe I've been lied to by the West. Maybe God does not exist. And so he determined in his mind that in the next day when he woke up, he was going to live like God didn't exist anymore. He, he was going to give up. He was going to not pray, not ask God for help. He would prayed before and it didn't seem to be working. So here he was. He's going to give up. This is when it gets interesting. The next morning, he was assigned the dreaded chore of cleaning the prison latrines. If you don't know what latrines are, it's toilets. You can imagine like the high school toilets. As he cleaned out a tin can overflowing with toilet paper. That sounds nice. His eye caught what seemed to be English printed on a piece of paper. And he could read English. He hurriedly grabbed it, washed it, and after his roommates had retired for the night... He retrieved the paper and read the words on the top of the page, Romans chapter 8. 
Trembling, he began to read the words on the page and it said, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. For I am convinced that nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When Hein read this, he wept. He knew his Bible well, and he knew that there was not a more relevant passage on, one of, on the verge of surrender than that one there. And he cried out to God asking forgiveness, for this was to have been the first day that he would not pray. <laughs> Evidently, God had other plans. What his tormentors were using for toilet paper, the scriptures, could not be more treasured to Hein. The story goes on. It's pretty interesting. In fact, he ends up collecting maybe half the New Testament and he insists on taking the job of cleaning the latrines because every day there's a new page there in the bin. What one prisoner is treating like rubbish was life to his soul. He eventually escaped and uh, with God's help, he uh, made it back to America and he tells this incredible story. There is no other book that can be so ancient in the past, yet so relevant for today. That is why it's called living. You know, you've heard it, that's called the living word. It's because it can be so ancient, yet so relevant. And it's going to be relevant in a thousand years. In fact, the Bible says, it's, it testifies about itself, that earth shall pass away, but it will never pass away. There's a man named Nabil Qureshi. Can we see this guy up here? Now, this, this man is an incredible man of God. He passed away in 2017, and he had an incredible ministry. I want to tell you a bit about Nabil. I, found, I discovered him only about a year ago, and his, his ministry really encouraged me. I want to read you a bit about him. Nabil grew up as a dedicated, practicing Muslim man, and he often shared his Muslim faith and challenged Christians' beliefs in public. When he went to university, he met a committed and outwardly Christian man named David Wood. David's a very interesting guy. I like him a lot. David and Nabil challenged each other to investigate each other's faiths to determine what was true. After several years of developing a friendship and studying these religions, Nabil came to the conclusion that the Bible was actually true, right? That's really big for a Muslim. And that Jesus was truly the Son of God. He finally bit the bullet and accepted Jesus as Lord of his life. And his life was transformed. However, he hadn't given up Islam. His family, still dedicated Muslims, had no idea of Nabil's conversion to Christianity. If they found out, it would absolutely break their hearts. Nabil didn't know what to do. He was now a Christian, but still felt like a Muslim. In his distress, knowing the inevitable consequence of him publicly becoming a Christian, he went to the Quran for comfort. Now, in, in many Muslim families, if you were to leave Islam, it is like putting disgrace on your family. And they feel like you've betrayed them, and many disown their uh, disown their children who have disowned Islam. And so he loved his family, didn't know what to do. And so he did what he'd been raised to do, and he went to the Quran for comfort. And as he went to the Quran, 
He turned page after page. And no matter how much he turned, he found no comfort for his despair. So he closed it and instead opened up the Bible and thought to himself, if this is the word of God, it will be the comfort I need. So he opened up to the Bible to the Gospel of Matthew. And in no time at all, he came to the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5. And he, and he read this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And immediately his despair was gone, and he felt confident in what he had to do. He did come out as a Christian, and his family, they had a lot of battles to overcome. But they actually united with him a bit later in life as he got cancer. And, you know, he died in 2017. Many people prayed for him. They wanted him to be saved. At the end of his life, he said, continue the ministry. And I know that he would have preferred his short life knowing the Lord Jesus than all the years in the earth being estranged from God. And he knew that the word of God was living. He tried the other book. It didn't work. But this one was living. It's like what Simon Peter said. If we go to the next slide. He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Who else has the words of eternal life? And you can search the whole world and you'll never find words like you will in these, in these pages. You can go bungee jumping in Brazil and you won't find the life that is found in these pages. Last thing I want to share with you tonight, as we've got a little bit more time, is the load scroll. You guys enjoying this? Enjoying my slides? I've prepared a long time. Now, this, this load scroll, it's named after a place in Poland. It was purchased by Josh McDowell from an Austrian merchant for about one-fiftieth of its worth. The merchant thought he had a good deal. But he never learned of the hundreds of thousands of dollars this scroll was truly worth, right? Scroll's worth a lot of money. McDowell scanned the entire document and made it available for anyone to view via an app called the Load Scroll. You can literally download the app and see it today. I've been on it. It's pretty cool, pretty interesting. He named it after a Polish city which had history in World War II. So this city... 100,000 Jews lost their lives as a result of the Lodes Ghetto. And it was over their bodies that they hid and protected sacred texts just like this one behind us. Because they knew that the words in these scrolls were more important to preserve than their own lives. And now, boys and girls, when we look at this book, do you realize that more blood has been shed over the protection of this book than any book in the world. These people lay down their life for it. They hid it. They were probably punished because of owning these things. And sometimes we don't even know where our Bible is in the house. Maybe it's collecting dust. Maybe using it as a paperweight, as I've been guilty of doing in the past. But this thing has been through history. This thing has got history in it. Now, there are a bunch of other additional evidence I could go through, like divine wisdom, miraculous preservation, 
incredible coincidences, the infallibility of Scripture, the fulfilled prophecy in Scripture, and the global impact that the Bible has had. But I think that these stories kind of speak my point. Is the Bible special? Is the Bible trustworthy? Is it the Word of God? I think those first two questions are pretty adequately covered. But the third question, I'm going to kind of leave in your ballpark. Is this really the Word of God? If it is, if this thing really is the message that God sent for me, then I better do something about it. You know, we believe that it's not just a coincidence that this thing came from ancient history to us today and that it can speak and breathe like it's living to us. Because God put this in your life for a reason. And it's his message to you. It's his message to you, Lach. It's the message to you, Jordan. My last slide today, if we go to that one, is just how do I start reading the Bible? Now, this is for you people out there that maybe don't have much experience reading the Bible, but maybe you're starting to think tonight, maybe it's actually important. And I tell you, if it's really the Word of God, then it, what is more important in life? What is more important to put time into than, than reading what God has told you? Now, these are some simple things that we can all start. So start simple. I heard someone say once that the Bible is shallow enough for a toddler to play in, but deep enough for an elephant to drown. That's pretty cool, isn't it? You don't have to be awesome. You don't have to be super intelligent. You have to be academic to start reading this thing. If you've never read this thing, I encourage you to go to the Gospel of John, which is maybe the simplest gospel, and it's the story of Jesus. It's that simple. And if you're not sure what else to read, talk to an experienced uh, Christian here, someone who's maybe not an experienced Christian, because not all experienced Christians have actually picked up their Bibles. Maybe talk to someone that you know is living a godly life. Don't cram. Don't cram like it's an exam. I encourage you that if you start cramming the Bible and and you don't really get the point of what's going on, and it's kind of just words going in one ear and out the other, then you need to slow it down. Sometimes I'll pick up my Bible, I'll read about 30 words, I'll meditate on that, and I'll put it down. And that's all I've got to do. And the question I ask myself is, is this just going into my head, or am I letting what is in the Bible go into my heart? And it changes me. The third one is read in context. It's like uh, if you didn't read in context, it's, it's like this. It's like going to France and asking them where the nearest uh, toilet is in English and expecting them to, to respond in English. It's offensive. But when you read the Bible, it's actually an ancient book. So we actually have to read it mindful of what the ancient readers thought and how they wrote. That's important, but I'll get into that later, another time. And the last thing I want to say is ask questions. A lot of people know this, but even Jesus asked questions. In Luke 2.46, it says this, After three days, this is when Jesus was a boy, after three days they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. 
Jesus asked some questions about the Scripture. And what I want to encourage you guys is pick up your Bibles this week, read a bit, and read it with the intention of asking questions. Because the Bible can hold up against any of your questions. It's not scared of your questions. And then maybe if you've still got those questions, ask somebody who you know understands the Bible really well. Or do research. Because that's how the Bible begins to impact your life. And that's how it begins to be living for you. So that is what I'm going to leave you guys with. Are you challenged tonight to do something about this book? Yeah? Are you challenged to go home and, and find your Bible? Are you challenged to start to live your life by what this thing actually says? I hope, you, hope so. Well, it's been an honour to be able to speak to you guys tonight. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. And I hope that it means something uh, profound to you. And I hope it begins to change your life. I welcome you up, Jesse, to lead us out.